0: This episode is brought to you by Mojo. Performance enhancing services make people faster, smarter, and more effective as human beings. And Mojo is the world's most powerful. With Mojo, you can plan out your next move, tackle your next challenge, and accomplish your next goal. That's why people that use Mojo are in better shape, make more money, and have better relationships. And teams that use Mojo have higher performance, better cultures, and more talented people. So, if you want to optimize your performance and well being in 2022, try out Mojo risk free at JoinMojo.com. That's 14 days absolutely free at JoinMojo.com.
1: Well, hello, everybody. This is David Naylor with the Motivational Intelligence Podcast. I've got Sean Johnson with me here today. And we have a very, very phenomenal guest, incredibly interesting uh, gentleman with a background that that you rarely find in people and an incredible story about how it all came together. So his name is Al West. Now, Al uh, will tell us a little bit, I'm sure, about his upbringing and whatnot, but I'll tell you a little bit about his professional side of things. He is one of the rare individuals who was part of a unicorn company, uh, internet startup. He was the fifth employee in the organization, um, actually built the sales team for the organization. So he got to see the inside of, of a rapidly growing software company and all of the learning that, that came from that. So we've got a very cool conversation today. So Al, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to tell my story.
0: Yeah, so Al, I actually wanted to start, you know, one of the things that, that you notice when you study very successful people is they typically will have uh, a very clear, crystal clear driver. And a lot of times that that is kind of what pushes them to continually improve. And a lot of times it comes from their upbringing. So I kind of wanted to start there. Could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and, and maybe how that shaped you?
2: Sure. Thanks, Sean. I, I do think that that has a, a big part in who I am, and of course everybody brings their history along with them, and it's something that we kind of have to we all have to deal with them when we are, or another we kind of drag it around, and it follows us whether we want it to or not. So going back to the beginning, I guess we'll we'll start there. I was born in in the '60s, and I was the result of of a relationship between two people where they just weren't ready to have children. And that that happens a lot, but my mother had had an accident was actually told that she could not have children. And I was the first of of four. So never believe when doctors tell you it's, it's an impossibility and, and things can happen even when it's supposed to be impossible. But my two parents were not ready for children and So shortly after I was born, they, they, they tried to make a go of it, but they kind of went their separate ways and just delivered me to my grandmother. And this would be my, my father's mother. And she took me over when I was three months old and started to raise me. And when I was four years old, my biological mother came back into the fold. My grandmother and grandfather were about to pack up and leave Los Angeles, California, a very nice affluent suburb in California And they were about to pack everything up and and leave it behind. They were tired of the traffic, the smog, and just the whole rigmarole of Los Angeles. I've been there numerous times. That's where I was born. But they were ready to pack it up and go home. And home for my grandfather was Louisiana, of all places. To go from one L.A. to the other L.A. (laughs) was to go from Los Angeles to Louisiana, two very different places. And I remember it was the first memory of my childhood is just crying to my, my mother to let me go. I, I didn't want to be with her. She was kind of a stranger to me, quite frankly, after being with my grandparents for most of my, all of my life, up to four years old. And so she let me go. We went, we packed everything up. And it's really funny that we did a reverse Beverly Hillbillies. If you've ever seen the Beverly <laughs> Hillbillies, they, lot, they left the hills of uh, Kentucky or somewhere in Appalachia. In their shack, when they hit it big in oil and moved to California, to Beverly Hills, actually, and we didn't move from Beverly Hills, but we, we were an affluent family in, in a middle-class suburb, you know, living the, the dream. My grandfather was an aircraft mechanic at Hughes Aircraft, and he basically said, one day, we're going home. and So we packed it all up and moved to Louisiana. And home for him was actually a shack, just like the Beverly Hillbillies had moved away from. So we literally did the the reverse of the Beverly Hillbillies. Wow. And when I say shack, it was very much a shack. Let me describe it to you. And one day I'll send a picture so you'll get a visual. Maybe we'll post it with the podcast or something. But this shack was three rooms. And it was something that my grandfather's brother had given to him because it was something that they'd lived in for a short period of time until they built another house. But it had no indoor running water whatsoever. So we're talking about the outhouse, and we had to carry water in jugs from our neighbor, which was his mother, my grandfather's mother, my great-grandmother. So we basically found ourselves uh, in a situation with with three rooms, no indoor plumbing, and in very tight quarters, obviously. So I I slept uh, in the bedroom with my grandparents, and we lived there from the time I was four years old until I was nine, so for five years. I lived in, in... those kind of conditions. And, you know, I didn't know much different. I knew we had uh, a bathroom uh, with running water and every, all the luxuries in California, but you know, soon afterwards moving to Louisiana was a big adventure going out in the woods and, you know, just being your nearest neighbors a half a mile away and everything was just a a new adventure for me. So didn't know any different that things, conditions were bad, but I did realize that I was poor and we stayed poor because my grandfather went to work for the local, county government, which they call parishes in Louisiana and and drove a dump truck and probably didn't make much because we didn't have much all the way through the rest of the the time that I lived with them. And we, I remember when, when I was nine years old, we bought another house or he bought another house. And I think I remember that they bought it uh, a house and three acres from his aunt and uncle who had recently died from the estate of his aunt and uncle for $5,000. Now you probably got a deal, but the house wasn't that much. It was a frame house probably built back in the 40s, in the 1940s, and it was older and but it but let me tell you, it had six rooms, three bedrooms, and those six rooms and it also had indoor plumbing. Now we did have electricity in the old house that didn't have indoor plumbing, but this was a, an upgrade for us, but you know what? I was still poor. And I, I felt like I was, I, I knew I was poor. And at some point in time, when I was living in the old house that had no indoor running water, or indoor plumbing, I remember saying to myself very clearly that I will not be poor when I grow up. Hmm. And that has been a motivating factor for me because most people have not lived that poor and it certainly had an impact on me and, and. I remember clearly saying to myself, I will not be poor when I grow up. And and that was my biggest motivating factor and, and, you know, fear motivates you, but I don't know that this was a fear of being poor, but I just remember I w- would not be poor when I grew up. And, and I didn't even know what poor, what the opposite of poor was, but anybody who had indoor, you know, running water was, was not poor in my book.
1: Yeah. So with, relative to the other people that you were going to school with, I imagine it was probably a fairly small school. And so when was, was the level of poverty fairly equal across the community or were you going to school with kids who were significantly you know, better off than you guys were?
2: I don't know anybody that, that I went to school with that didn't have indoor running water. Mm-hmm. and so that put me at the bottom of the barrel and when we moved into the home that had the running water you know it wasn't like i was exactly on on even even par the people that i hung with throughout school and into high school i mean they were all considerably more affluent they they were definitely you know middle class some of them upper middle class but nobody had it nearly as bad as you know, not having any indoor running water. And I knew that I was at the bottom of the barrel when it came to being poor. And so hard to top that.
1: Yeah. So how did you, I mean, obviously to go from, from growing up that way to, you know, making your way and, you know, in a, in a high tech startup, how did you make the transition from there to being able to go on to college and get an education and you know on that side of things
2: so that's a good part of the story i remember going from the eighth grade into high school that conversation where you sit down with your guidance counselor going into high school and your guidance counselor now my grandmother was in the conversation this was the year before she died and she's in the conversation with me and the guidance counselor and the guidance counselor said if Alston, that's my proper name had only applied himself, he would have been uh, in the top 20 of of his graduating class going into high school, it was about 120 people. And I was like, yeah, 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 no no problem. And my grandmother was like, stop the conversation." looked at me and she said, you better listen carefully here because if you don't, you're not gonna go to college and you're gonna end up being just like your cousins. Hmm. And boy, that was the slap uh, across the bow for me. That scared me straight as an arrow. And I took that to heart because my cousins that I had grown up with, they were poor, but they didn't, they didn't try to apply themselves. They didn't really, any of them really, except for one of my cousins, had, had try, and he was the youngest of, of my cousins, but they, my first cousins, they, they just didn't really try and, and didn't make much of themselves. And there was the employment conditions around where I grew up in a small town in, in North Louisiana was not that great. So she really scared me straight. And from that point on, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to make straight A's. And I, I mean, I bared down. It wasn't like it came easy to me. I, I had to spend extra time studying, but I just, it's, it's like something switched in me and that motivation that that motivating that I will not be poor. I knew if I didn't go to college, I didn't have much of a chance of breaking out of this. So I, I bared down and in high school, I, I, my, my GPA was 3.96, which means I made one B and we got report cards every six weeks. And in order to make an A, you had to have a 94 average on all of your, your schoolwork. And one of those six week periods, I had a B and it was a 93. I missed it by one point and I was pretty devastated, but I ended up getting a pretty good scholarship into a local engineering school that I applied to Louisiana tech university.
1: Hmm.
0: Wow. So L, was this something, you know, you, you mentioned early on, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, I will not be poor. And then kind of that same motivating factor coming up again with with your grandmother and, and getting your grades in line. How conscious of that driver were you growing up? And is it something like as you got into your career, did you find yourself going back there to kind of tap that well of motivation consciously? Or was it something that was kind of happening in the background that maybe you weren't consciously aware of it yet. No, I was very
2: consciously and subconsciously aware of the, this motivational driving force. And it certainly was a driving force because that that changed my behavior, eighth grade going into ninth grade. And it stayed with me throughout my entire life. And I, I wouldn't call it a fear, a fear of, of being poor, but... It just was a driving force, and there were there's always times in life when you face adversity, when it's hard to keep going, and you you look for the motivation to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and and just keep going forward, and that's always been that that driving force deep deep within, whether it's conscious or subconscious, it, it was always that driving force to keep me moving, and to keep going. You know, in a direction that would help me to achieve those results.
0: So you you very clearly applied it, you know, in in academia and getting into, into college. How did that translate, you know, in into getting your career started? How did you use that?
2: Well, there in getting my career started, I actually ended up having to drop out of, of college. And that was a very difficult moment, but it was the result of my grandfather at that point being in bad health and having to, to help him through a very difficult time in his life from a, from a health standpoint, and also just being thrust into the workforce earlier than I wanted to. So my senior year of college, I, I left early, and it was one of those things that I was never able to go back and, and finish it up. And it, it bothers me to a certain degree, but at the same time, I kind of think I'm not in bad company with the likes of Bill Gates, uh, Steve Jobs. Wozniak, and others who have been able to be successful without having that four-year degree. But I, I thought I wanted to program computers. That's what I thought I had found a passion for. And when I got out into the workforce, I—, I one thing to do it in college, but when you get into the workforce and you start doing it on a day-in-a-day-out basis, I didn't realize just how, number one, I just it wasn't appealing to me. It became a very boring and mundane job for me, and I wasn't the greatest gifted person when it comes to writing code. It was very, very boring to me. I was maintaining somebody else's code and making some changes to it. And I remember one day my boss coming to me and noticing that I wasn't doing too good at coding, and he basically promoted me. Now I don't suggest this is a good thing, but it was kind of <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing going back that. You're not good at writing code but hey I'm going to I'm going to have you do this other job over here which is it's called a, it was called a database analyst and I was like okay what is that exactly and basically it was the keeper of the files and and I I I gravitated towards that and did a much better job at database work than just grunt coding what I would call grunt coding and sorry for if I offend anybody out there but it just wasn't for me and I was better at that but I still had not found my calling and this is only a few years into doing this that a friend of mine I, I met up with was doing very well um, for himself. He had the nice car, had a lot of, lot of neat things going. And, you know, he came up to me and was t- saying, asking how I was doing. I'm like, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a database analyst. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm just a sales guy. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing okay. And what do you mean by okay? And he's like, tell me how much he was making. And it literally was five times what my salary was as a, as a database analyst. I'm like, oh, wait a minute, my ears must be clogged up. You, you said this number and it was five times the number of what I was making. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, no way. Come on. Yeah, I don't believe you. And he's like, yeah, check it out. Here's my W2. <laughs> <So> he, <laughs> he showed me his W2. And I thought, I immediately said, wow, I'm on the wrong side of the business. Can, can you hook me up? And the rest is history. He's like, sure, I'll get you an interview with my boss. And, you know, if you think you'd, you really think you'd want to be in sales. And I'm like, hey, you know, money motivates me. I'm very motivated by that. So uh, the rest, as they say, is
1: history. Wow. So how, what was that conversation like with his boss? You know, you're coming from the programming side. How did you convince the, you know, this individual that, you know, hey, no, I can, you know, I can sell in addition to managing the database?
2: <laughs> well, that was not easy. I expected it to be easy because I'm like, hey, if if you're a basketball coach and you played basketball, wouldn't you be a better coach? And they didn't get it. I mean, it was almost <laughs> like these people selling technology was their own little secret society with their own little secret handshakes. And it wasn't easy to convince his boss to, to take a chance on me. But I... And, and, and I wouldn't say at that point in time, I was the most outgoing person, but it's interesting how you, I think you can reconstruct your DNA. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly do. If, if the motivation is is deep enough, you're not an outgoing person, but you know that you have to be, become that person to to achieve what you want. I, I became that person. I, I turned it on. I found it. I don't know how I, I was able to reconstruct my DNA, but if it's something that you truly desire enough, I think that things can fall into place, and I, I really wanted this. Uh, I was motivated by my friend, and I was motivated by the money at that point, and so that allowed me to, to put that together and be very persistent. I, I would not call myself a persistent person up to that point, but this was something that I, I truly wanted, and I, I went after it with everything in me. It was my desire of my heart, and I convinced him to take a chance on me. Hmm.
1: Well, that's, you know, it's always in the want to, the people discover the how to. So you had big, big want to. What
0: was the learning curve like in getting starting in in sales?
1: Well, that's
2: an interesting question. To me, I've always felt like sales, initially, I looked down on it, to be honest with you. I really Mm -hmm. did. I looked down on sales. And for the first year, I was extremely apologetic, calling on people that I used to be on their side of the business. And I would explain, hey, I used to be on your side. I was a techie. I, I managed the database. And, and, but now I've got some technology that can help you solve a business problem. And a peer of mine on the sales side, who'd been selling for many years, basically sat me down and said, hey, you've got to stop apologizing. You're offering a valuable service here. Your time is valuable, first and foremost. Your knowledge is valuable and you're helping them solve a complex business problem. Uh, And you know how to articulate that value of what our solution does. And so that person taking the interest to set me down and and teach me how to sell, you know, there aren't many places you can go to learn how to sell. There's only a few universities that have degrees in sales. There's a lot of companies or, or universities that offer business degrees, general business degrees, but I only know of about five in the entire country that you can go get a degree in selling or sales. So there is a lot of school of hard knocks when it comes to sales, unfortunately, and it's not just common sense. There really is a lot of psychology. And then, but I I think the technical foundation that I had really helped me to apply and and learn my niche very, very well and, and become a master of the craft because I'm selling technology. I couldn't envision myself selling anything else, but technology and applying that to solve business problems, it truly was my passion. And that's the thing that I've, I've told not only my children, but other people that I talk to that are trying to figure out what to do in life, find your passion. Because if you do, it will be rewarding, but also you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah.
1: So Al, were you relatively successful quickly when you came into sales or was that something where there were the lean years in that as well? that, but that was that passion that kept you fighting through those lean years.
2: Well, the first year was lean. There was a lot of learning to do. And I remember basically moving from Louisiana where I was working on the tech side and I moved to this company in New Jersey. And that was a big move culturally, you know, it was, it was culture shock going from Louisiana again now into Jersey, but Hey, I was more than willing to, to do whatever it took if, if it meant moving with the eye of, hey, eventually I'm going to get back down south, probably Atlanta because it's a technology hub. But I, that first year in Jersey with the company that I went to work for, things were going pretty smooth until about six months in. I, I get a I get a call from the boss. He's like, come into my office. And I was just getting up to speed. I I, I, I had a pipeline and I had a few deals. I, I closed one deal but I hadn't achieved my quota yet. And it was like, okay, you're gonna now, we're gonna put you on a plan. And I'm like, okay, what's a plan? He's like, well, if you don't make your quota by the end of the month, we're gonna have to let you go. And I'm thinking six months in, I, you're gonna let me go. You're okay, huh? So I, I thought this is not good. I mean, here I am, I've, I've made this investment in myself. I've moved across the country. I'm dealing with these cultural differences. First of all, let me figure out a way to make my quota because I, I had a pipeline, so I, I got on my bike and, and uh, started figuring out how to close these deals and, and was fortunate enough to guess what? I made my quota. But the same at that same afternoon, I went home, thought about it, put together a plan and said, you know what? This company doesn't really want me very badly. I'm going to call our biggest competitor, cold called a sales manager at our biggest competitor and said, hey... I'm interested in talking to you and can we, can we have a conversation? And so I ended up making my number and everybody celebrating, but I said, no, here's my resignation that showed that you did not want me. I'm going to your biggest competitor. Hmm. So I, it was kind of like, okay, I'll show you. I moved out of Jersey down to Maryland and went to work for a competitor. And with this competitor, it's just like it was almost custom made for me. This this company in Jersey did everything over the phone. The company in Maryland was a face-to-face and they, they emphasize face-to-face. And so my territory was a combination of North Carolina and, and part of Maryland. I had a little bit of local, but also had a remote territory. And that first full year with that company in Maryland, I became their top salesperson out of 42 salespeople globally. Hmm. And I had achieved something that no other salesperson had ever achieved, which was a million dollars of perpetual licenses. Today, a million dollars, you know, average probably deal sizes for most companies. Back then, and this was in, in 1991, no one had ever done it for this company. No one had ever sold a million dollars in software. And it was an average deal size of less than 20K. So that was a lot of transactions. But uh, things fell into place for me. And and I was very fortunate to be able to figure it out and achieve success fairly, fairly early on.
0: And I want to circle back to getting sat down and basically, you know, your boss saying, you got to hit this quota or you're gone. Your response to that, it strikes me a lot of similarities. It's almost like you ran the same play that you ran when your grandmother said, hey, you got to get your grades together or you're not going to be able to go to college. Was that a similar mentality that, that you kind of, that was a, a shout out the bow? I really got to get this figured out. And, and how did that kind of motivate you?
2: It was definitely a motivation at times when you're slapped down by something that's out of your control. You really have two choices you can sit and sulk and have a pity party, or you can sit down, grab yourself by your big boy boots, and say, Okay, how do I fix this? And that's just always been my mentality. There's been times when I've just had to grit it out, and I sat down, put a strategy together. I said, my first strategy was, okay, I want, I've got to do something, everything I can to make my quota, but I, I want a backup plan. And that backup plan is I'm going to call our com- competitor and I'm going to tell them, you know, just see if I can reach out and initiate contact and see if I can have a backup plan. Turns out the backup plan became the, uh, the plan A.
0: Yeah. It seemed like that once you drew that line in the sand, it, things really started to click for you and, and you took off. You also mentioned, you know, the importance of, of finding your passion, what would your advice be to if somebody is listening and they don't really know what that is yet, what would your advice be to them in terms of how do they go about finding that for them?
2: Well, it's almost like chemistry when you're dating someone, you know, when, when you, when you're dating someone, you look in their eyes and you get that funny feeling all over and you just kind of know, wow, the, this, I'm very attracted to this person. They're, they're the one, not just a one, but the one. It's like that when you find your passion. It's not something that you can force. It's just something that you know it when you find it. And you, you, it's where your, your interests intersect with your abilities. And even if you don't have those abilities, like I alluded to earlier, when you don't have the outgoing nature, you don't have the, I, I didn't have the gift of gab, I had to re-engineer my DNA from an introvert to more of an extrovert. And I knew that, that I needed to be able to do that. Turns out that some of the best salespeople uh, in technology anyway are introverted and they listen a lot more than they, they speak. And that was one of the first lessons that I had to learn from one of my mentors that sat me down and said, yeah, you've got the gift of gab, but you got to learn when to use it. (laughs) So I always appreciated any mentor that was willing to, to give me the tough love and be very critical and teach me the art of selling and selling is both an art, but there's also some science that's related to it. And when those two things can intersect, it can be a beautiful thing. I I was fortunate enough to be able to, to make my quota uh, for the for the first 12 years uh, of my career. And the 13th year turned out to be a doozy. Of course, that's when the the bottom fell out with the dot bomb era. A lot was going on in the outside world, but you know, losing my job or with the threat of losing my job, I actually ended up being ahead of that and quitting that first job where I was put on a plan. That was a big motivating factor because I, I didn't want that to happen again. I didn't want to be not in control uh, with my livelihood being threatened. So that was a big motivating factor. And I guess it was a fear factor, but that very much played into the motivation going forward in my career.
1: Now mm-hmm. you've mentioned a couple of times about, you know, people, Coming into your life, who had a significant influence, you know, a mentoring kind of presence, somebody there giving you advice, was that something that you actively sought out, or was that was it just more happenstance that those people were there to advise you, and you know, in those timeframes?
2: I think it was a combination of the two. Many of them were bosses, but some of them were peers, some of them just friends. And in your in your sales journey, you really end up taking a lot. Uh, in putting it into your own book so you can read books and you're not going to take every single thing that the book says to do or take a training class or even with mentors, it's probably the 10% rule. You're probably going to take 10%, but you carry your own little book of, of how you're going to do things. And you do learn from a variety of sources where we get our information from and we learn from, from mentors, but I, I've always tried to keep myself open to, to coaching to learning from others, especially those that have demonstrated success. And when you're through learning, you're through. That's always been my mantra. But I I try to stay in a a mode where I can make myself available for constructive criticism and sometimes not so constructive criticism. Very much keep myself in tune with others that provide feedback and, and opportunities to learn, even people that work for me later in my career i learned to I, I continued to learn from many of them
1: yeah and you know and Al, you 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 mentioned too that you know the the dot bomb kind of and that's one of the things that the technology industry is you know somewhat famous for is the ebbs and flows of of you know the investment cycles and vc and 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 even changes in technology so obviously you went through that once. Were there other times where you were on a good trajectory and then, you know, the, the company blew up or there was, you know, something else happened that, you know, created some disruption in your career?
2: Yes. Back in the, the dot bomb era, I was working for a company that hit the wall very, very hard and I, I wasn't disrupted where I was pushed out, but I was given an opportunity to, to exit because they were re- reducing their force. And I was actually managing some people at the time and was not really liking the managing part of it because I, I was making less than people that were successful selling, but they didn't have an opportunity for me to go back into just an individual contributor role. So I took the opportunity to exit that company and really kind of regroup and, and figure out what I was going to do. And I got to say, it took me two times to, to get my footing again, one company was a shorter stint than I would have liked, but it just there were outside factors with the, the company being acquired, and also factors with just not meshing with a, a new manager in terms of their philosophy. They were very much like a snake oil salesman, and and I definitely didn't mesh with that type of with that type of personality—lying and cheating, scratching, biting, all of those things—and it's like, no, if I've got to do that to be successful, I just don't want to be there. But I was fortunate enough to, to to catch on with somebody that I I, I developed a, a rapport and a friendship with, and that person was was an exceptional IQ, and this person became a real mentor for me. And, and they started the company that I was with Aptus, and I we we started and I started when, you know as as you had alluded to as employee number five, there were three co-founders, a developer, and then myself. And you know, we just started together with no funding. We bootstrapped this thing together, and they had developed a product that I was very passionate about. I thought this has got some very unique attributes. It's solving a a complex business problem. I think I can get my my mound around this. Let's let's go out there and see what we can do. And it was uh, it was just an itch that I had to scratch. I always wanted to to be in an early stage startup, but let me tell you, that's careful what you ask for. There was no base salary. There was no insurance. And that those those were t- some tough times when it came to uh, you know the money side of things. But I had saved enough to be able to be in a position to to actually go forward and and give this a shot. And it turned out to be a, a very successful venture.
0: Yeah. So Al, I'd love to, you know, hear you color in even a little bit more detail what some of those early days were like. You know, you you kind of like this ragtag group of of five people getting going and, and you got an idea and it sounds like they, they put together a product, but what was it like, you know, walking in the door, no base salary, there's no sales happening. There's no existing processes or, or rule book in terms of how to, how to go about things. What was that like for you? Well,
2: those are interesting times and nothing in my career had really prepared me for, for that time. There was a, a demand for the product that we were selling. There, there was certainly a demand and there, it was a very complex business problem that needed to be solved. And the product, the product that had been developed had some very unique aspects to it. So that's what made me very passionate about it. And I just really, I put my head down and every day, once again, you know, faced with challenges because nobody knew about the company. There was no marketing. You, you get someone interested and they say, that's great. Well, who, who else is using this product? And you'd have to be hundred percent honest and say, well, we don't have any customers yet, <laughs> but we, you're going to love it. And, you know, we had to continue to sail through all of the early stage difficulties that go with, you know, a brand new startup. Who are you there? And, you know, walking in that door, it was my own door. It was, it was my basement. We, we all worked virtually. There was no office, and this was a company that was 100% bootstrapped, no outside funding whatsoever. It was an idea. It was a product. And the rest, my friend, was a blank sheet of paper. Go figure it out. And so I had a phone, a computer, and that was it. And I, I bought the phone. I bought the computer. I paid my own bills. I mean, this thing was bootstrapped again. So not a lot of luxuries on day one. Uh, at least I knew where the bathroom was because it was in my own house. But uh <laughs> But let me tell you, if it was going to be, it was up to me.
1: Wow. So you, you, I mean, literally, I was thinking of the, you know, the Steve Jobs garage story, but you guys didn't even have the garage, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we had five garages. <laughs> exactly. So those early sales calls, I mean, I can't even imagine going out with, you know, effectively nothing but, you know, hey, we've got this great idea and we're working on the software package and trying to convince people to, to buy it. So You know, talk to us a little bit about those, you know, those early sales calls and how long did it take before, you know, you got somebody to lean in?
2: Well, you know, those early calls, interestingly, in in those first four months, I don't remember the day or what month it was. All I remember was making a tremendous amount of calls because that's the one thing I could control. I can control my work ethic, if you will. And so the other things I can't control that we didn't have much marketing really almost zero we we didn't have nobody knew who we were but we had a pretty darn good product that had some very unique things about it but it was up to me to get it out there get the message out so I remember one day getting a call from my local phone provider and they said Mr. West do you have an automatic dialer on your phone I said no I don't which was the truth I did not they said, well, sir, over the last 48 hours, you've made 1,000 phone calls and from this number, and we're going to have to upgrade you to the commercial plan. And I said, whoa, whoa, wait, 1,000 calls, really? They said, yes, we're going to have to upgrade you to the commercial plan. I was like, wow, okay, that's that's kind of a bummer. First of all, i got to pay more but for the same service, but I was like, really, did I just make 1,000 calls in the last 48 hours? <laughs> I mean, holy smokes, I didn't know it was even possible with my finger, no automatic dialer. <laughs> But let me tell you, I was hitting it hard, obviously. And I was not just working the 9 to 5. My, my wife and kids would leave for school at about 6.45. And I would just get tunnel vision in that basement. And I would work because we I, I could have the entire country at my disposal. There were many days where I'd work from 6.45 a.m come back up for dinner and, and promptly at 6pm. My wife was a, a gem for having um, everything ready. Kids went to bed at 745, like clockwork and heading, heading back down to that basement. And, and from 745 until 10 o'clock or after many days, uh, just hitting it hard. And, and, you know, just people think they work hard, but those are some of the hardest, you know, working hard, if you will, defining that for me, that was some pretty hard work, a lot of hours, but just muscling your way through it. And Finding a way, once again, with a blank sheet of paper, we figured out how to get not only companies, small companies, but our fifth customer was Thompson before it was Thompson Reuters. Right. And it was a division of Thompson and we got them to buy 1200 seats of our product. And it was for $264,000, a three-year commitment, and then about a hundred thousand to implement the product. It was a million dollar contract uh, on our fifth customer. And that was uh, in March, the company had launched in August and we were profitable from that day forward until we took on outside money.
1: It must've been a hell of a celebration in the basement <laughs> yeah, that absolutely. day.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> it was a hell of a celebration in five basements. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how long was it from, you know, when you first started blank sheet of paper to to making that sale? What was that time frame?
2: Well, that was our fifth customer. The first customer we actually landed within the first 30 days. And that was from an existing relationship. All the, all the founders and myself came in with some existing relationships, kind of like changing a, a law firms. But once again, the, the first four customers were very small, under $10,000 in annual contract value. The fifth one that I landed, that was the big one. And, and once that domino fell, they started lining up. The big ones were easier to fall. The next one was semantic. The one after that was Delta Airlines. The one after that was Alcatel-Lucent. We started playing with the big boys, and and nobody wanted to be the first. But once Thompson fell, man, it was just amazing how the dominoes started to fall in a in a good way.
0: Yeah, absolutely so you know i'm curious going from that that blank sheet of paper one of the the notes that you know you seem to be a big believer in is, is learn to beat your competition and then me- make a repeatable process around it could you talk about what that means and maybe even in the context of in the early stages starting from a, a blank sheet of paper how you went about doing that when it came to aptus
2: yeah i will and and that kind of there's a little bit of a of a detour in the story and and this is another part of adversity that I found myself having to deal with. So here we are in, in the first year of being with Aptus, no salary, no benefits, but you know what? I got commission off of that sale and I got commission off the other sales and all those that I mentioned, those were dominoes that I made fall uh, after Thompson. So Delta airlines, Alcatel, Lucent, Symantec. Those were deals that I closed and they were starting to get sizable and we had the wind in our sales. The company was profitable. It was bootstrapped and things were going exceptionally well until I, I find out that my COBRA benefits from my last company were expiring and I had to get insurance. So I called an insurance broker and said, hey, dude, I need, I need some insurance. Hook me up. And he said, uh, we got a problem. I said, what do you mean we have a problem? He's like, well, your wife is not insurable. I said what do you mean she's not insurable and he's like "Well, this is pre-obamacare don't forget right so he said well your your wife is uninsurable because she had breast cancer and and that's a predefined condition so that wasn't a, a quick fix i actually had to leave aptus and it was the hardest thing i think i've had to do in my career but it was a risk that i was not willing to take so i left aptus and went with a competitor of all things i sat down with my ceo of the co-founders and he said i completely understand you should go do this uh go to work for stay in the in the industry work for this competitor and and when we get insurance you you will come back as if you never left and i said well i appreciate that and it was 14 months they they were able to get their footing go through a a benefit aggregator and get uh insurance for everybody not just myself a, a group policy so 14 months, but I went to work for one of their competitors and was successful with that competitor. Actually, ended up selling a pretty sizable deal to IBM, and then IBM took an interest in in buying that company as a result of that transaction. But you know, even though I was successful, made my quota, everybody was you know high fiving and Presidents Club and all that stuff. As soon as Aptus called again and said, "Hey, we're ready for you to come back," I dropped it like a hot potato and said, "I'm I'm leaving." And they were like, "What? You're leaving?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm." my allegiances lie elsewhere. So Mm. I immediately unplugged. But I learned the flaw because the company that I went to work for was the industry leader, quote unquote. But I learned they had a fatal flaw. And I actually went in and used that fatal flaw and found out that other companies doing what we were doing had that same fatal flaw. So I built a playbook that said, hey, here's actually how you can blow up their demo (laughs) because this is their fatal flaw. And it was, wasn't was an easy fix. And so that, that helped make Aptus successful because uh, the company where I was, and it helped to to really be able to, uh, now maybe you can look at that as being insider information, but it, it led to our success, knowing our competition at a at a deep level, exactly down to the point as to what would blow up their demos. So making that defined and repeatable at Aptus was a very big part of our success.
1: Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I'm reflecting right now on, a client from years ago who was uh, a fairly sizable player in the printer industry and they were their biggest competitor was HP and there was one thing that their printers could do that that HP printers couldn't do. And it really wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a significant thing, but they actually trained their salespeople to go out and make a huge deal out of this particular feature Hmm. and sell it like, you know, you absolutely have to have this feature. And they literally planted objections for the HP salespeople when they came in. So they kind of did the same thing. Interesting.
2: It's very similar. And in technology, though, if you can blow up your competitor's demo, when I say blow up, multiple bad things happen, but if you can get the application to crash in the middle of the the demo and you know how to do that every single time, it's uh, it can be a beautiful thing. It can certainly help you be successful.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: A little bit of evil genius in that, you yeah. know
0: <laughs> or maybe a lot even.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Alan, I'm curious, one of the things that previously you and David talked about that I'd love to hear you go into more you know, we talked about the early stages of Aptis and you talked about the three phases of building a sales organization. You know, you walked in, you're the only sales guy there. And eventually you're getting to a point where you're building a sales organization of, uh, correct me on on the numbers here, several hundred people. How do you go from one guy, blank sheet of paper to all of these people now reporting to you? So
2: in the early days it wasn't just myself. I have to give credit. There were there were two of the other co-founders who had had a sales, somewhat of a sales background. They were actually marketing guys who thought they were great salespeople and and learned how to sell. And I say that in, in endearingly, but there were three of us that were selling, and we we all worked together. And it wasn't just a, a singular effort in those early days. When I came back after my hiatus, and uh, we really decided to to. to continue growing the organization. But when you don't have outside money, it's very slow organic growth. So in six years, it took us six years to get to 87 employees. And because I remember it very well, this was the end of our, the CEO sent out a year end email to all the all 87 employees in 2012. But you know, times were good, we were profitable, we had several million in in revenue. And, and we were growing at a, a, an astronomical clip. I mean, literally year over year, we were between 70 and hundred percent year over year growth every single year. But at the end of 2012, and this is six years into my journey at Aptus, we had 87 employees. And out of those 87, there were 12, 12 people that were in my sales organization. I had a, a VP East and a VP West. And in, in that period of growth, uh, I, I'm going to use an analogy that somebody else gave me. I, 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 give credit where credit's due. This is not my own analogy, but technology companies like this go through growth. And the very first phase, I, I kind of liken to command those. This is the Delta Force. These are people that go behind enemy lines. Uh, they use laser pointers and the B-52s come in and bomb the target. And you don't even really know that the Delta Force is there. They're really good at, at you know blowing up stuff and, and making things happen. And you go from those commandos in those early days to a little bit more of a militia. In 2012, we were kind of a militia. We were loosely organized, but not a lot of structure. And But then in 2013, we took on some outside money and we really hit the slipstream. As a management team, we all sat back and decided we can continue growing like we're growing, but we really, really want to go for it. I mean, there's a market opportunity here that we really need to more than double down Let's go build a sales machine and and really just swing for the fences. So we did that. And then we went from so the militia or from the militia we went to now more of an army. And in, building an army is is just that. So let me define what that means. So we went from 12 merry band of lollipop men, as my CEO used to call us uh, back in 2012. Two years later, the company's a thousand employees. So this is the same end of year in, in 2014. CEO says, we have a thousand employees. My organization consisted of over a hundred sales reps, quota carrying sales reps globally. And also, but you have all the sales infrastructure around that. So we had sales operations, sales enablement, sales engineering, the BDR, the business development team inside sales, all of these added up to around a couple hundred people. And so now we were definitely an army and that period, those two years was a period of growth that, that just really astounds me because you th- think about your, your day and, and time management. Half of my day was spent uh, interviewing people to, to hire. And I kind of got away from, you know, getting in front of customers or clients and prospects and had to learn how to, to push things down to, to manage from a management perspective and become more effective at time management and really focusing on the most important things.
1: So was it just, A controlled chaos. I mean, I can't even imagine the, you know, when you have 87 people, you probably have a pretty good sense of what everybody's doing and how they're contributing and, and if they're, you know, the difference that they're making, but, 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 you know, when you grow from that to a thousand people in the span of a couple of years, how do you even have a sense of what are all these people doing and, and some semblance of the, you know, keeping Control over the chaos, just of the the growth.
2: There was an awful lot of chaos. There were a lot of headwinds, but we also had those are some of the best of times as well because the the growth in the company was was stellar. I mean, well over 100 percent year over year. I think in one of those years it was 107 percent. Another year it was 111 percent year over year growth. So being able to grow 100 percent, it was chaos. There were headwinds. And let me tell you, not everything was easy. So as, as the leader of this organization, the sales organization, you really have to stay ahead of those headwinds. You cannot manage in the moment. You have to iterate and stay ahead of where you are and, and always be looking to the next phase of where you need to go. Don't manage to the moment, manage to where you need to be. And that's my mantra and and that really contributed to my success and, and being able to, to grow and scale the organization.
0: You also mentioned, you know, you're spending half your day, maybe, maybe more than that on some days, interviewing new candidates and and recruiting. What were some of the things that you were looking for in people? And in particular, was it something that, you know, one of the things that we've talked about for a big key to success for you was having that driver. Was that something that you were looking for in all of those interviews in terms of hiring new people?
2: Well, my mantra is if you do not know what your target is, you're never going to be able to hit it. So you have to truly understand what your target is from a hiring perspective. Really, that can apply to really any, any business target that you're trying to hit. You have to clearly understand what that target is. And interestingly at Aptus, what we were looking for in the early days for, in a sales candidate changed over time. In the early days, we would never hire someone from the bigger companies like Oracle or SAP or, or even Salesforce for that matter. Because f- coming from a bigger company into a scrappy startup, uh, a lot of times they could really disrupt the, uh, the commandos. They're, they're not startup mentality people in, in many cases. Uh, so we would exclude a lot of those people coming from the bigger companies. In 2012 to 2014 during the, the, the growth in that growth period, that's when we started to bring in people from those larger organizations because we had the infrastructure to support them and their DNA helped our DNA become more of a, a larger company selling to larger enterprises, selling larger deals. So it was really with foresight that we always refined our target based on where we were in time. So from a sales candidate's perspective, what may not have been a good candidate in, you know, 20, 2006 to 2012 or 13 became a good candidate in that 2012 to 2014 period of time. So you're always iterating, always staying ahead of not managing to where you are, but where you need to be. So that, that also changed from a candidate profile. But in my hiring process, I've always tried to apply engineering, which was my college background, computer science, and taking all the advanced calculus and math, try to apply that engineering approach and and bring control from chaos, bring order to chaos. So use that engineering discipline to try to to put a process in place, even from a hiring perspective. So it started out with understand the target, what you're trying to hit, and then you manage to that target. From a hiring perspective. So I always ask the same baseline questions to candidates that I would interview. And from those that same question baseline, I was able to apply a numeric scoring and make a, a determination very quickly as to whether or not this person was going to fit what we needed. And I would ask situational questions versus questions around, did you make your number? How did you make your number? I, I would really get into situational questions because sales reps are really good at selling themselves and telling you what you want to hear. But when you get into situational, that's a lot more difficult. When people have to tell you how they do something, it's uh, it's more situational. And I've always used that approach in, in interviewing, and I, I make quick determinations based on the responses and and measuring that against the target.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Al, you mentioned that you know obviously as the organization grew, the the profile of who you were looking for changed. So, what about those the you know the the early commandos, because you oftentimes hear about people who are, you know, startup folks, and you know, and they get disillusioned as the organization scales and grows, and you kind of lose that startup feel. Were you able to hold on to those people, or did they, you know, come to that realization and go looking for the next startup? You know, some
2: of them did, and and some of them were able to to evolve, iterate, and adapt remember I was one of those startup guys. Yeah. I was the original startup guy. I mean, just five of us. And I was the sales guy. I mean, that, that's what I did. So I, I've walked a mile in those moccasins. And that helps from a leadership perspective because I could truly lead from the front. People would look to me to say, okay, how do we beat our competitor? Uh, Salesforce became a competitor in 2016. That, that was interesting times. I mean, we didn't tuck our tail and run. We actually grew 74% that year. Hmm. So we were able to, to thrive even amidst you know, Salesforce climbing in the ring with you. And that's, that's not, a, not an easy thing to do. And it doesn't just happen by chance. Once again, you, you reach down and grab yourself by your big boy boots and you say, okay, here's the situation. Now, what am I going to do about it? And the things that you can control, you control them. The things that you cannot, you don't even try. Sales, we couldn't keep Salesforce from entering our arena But what we could do is find a way to beat them convincingly. And and we were able to do that on a pretty, pretty successful run.
0: You mentioned a phrase there, lead from the front. Can you talk a little bit more about what, what you mean by that and why it's important?
2: Yeah, I think managers manage, are good at managing things like tasks and managing time and managing other aspects, managing people from that perspective. Some people are good at that. Leaders lead. And there is a difference. And leading an organization requires things like charisma. But once again, people are going to gravitate to someone who knows the way. And so knowing our domain, mastering our domain, I would say. I, I consider myself to have mastered the domain in which we were selling. And mastering, meaning everything about the competition, knowing the competition intimately how to beat the competition, how to articulate value. I mean, those are all key things that I was able to bring to the table and and help my sales team achieve success. I mean, I I wanted to be the person that if they brought me into a deal, they felt like this was going to help them be successful in that deal. It was going to be an asset and a major asset. And that's how I tried to position myself as we got to an army. I, I wanted to be, if not the general, one of the high colonels at the table and and be able to help my sales team be successful.
1: You know, I'm curious, the, you know, when a company is small, you know, when you're at 87 people, the culture of the organization is it's relatively easy because you can get things done with a conversation in the, in the hall, the charisma of the leaders, you know, easily translates to the people. And so that it's a very tight knit culture, that kind of commando or, you know, band of brothers side of things. But obviously, as you scale with each person you bring in, you dilute that down. So how did you, how did you quantify the culture and, and, and how did you really perpetuate that and kind of keep it where you wanted it as you guys were growing the organization.
2: Well, Dave, this is where two logical comes into the story for me. I mean, I I attended one of your training classes and you know, the old 90 10 rule, I'm probably only going to remember 10% of, of anything that you, you spoke in that, in that two day clinic. But one of the things that really stuck with me was a definition of culture. And I loved your definition. I've used it many, many times before. It's, it's in my DNA. So I refer to it often. If you can define a culture, then you might be able to, to actually influence it. And I loved your definition of culture being the collective dominant thoughts in the organization. And that's essentially what it is. And it kind of made me think of, you know, this whole thing around your brand. Your brand is what you want everybody to think you are, but your reputation is what you really are. And culture has those two aspects to it. You know, your culture can be what you, it's going to be what it's going to be. Those dominant thoughts are going to happen. You can influence it as a leader to a certain degree, but there are always going to be things that are out of your control and the the dominant thoughts of that organization are going to be what they're going to be. But when you can sit down and break it down and say, what do I want my culture to be? Then you can try to influence it. So one of the things that I focused on in our culture and it was a subculture within sales. And one of the things that I tried to do was keep things light. And what I mean by light is not that I was a stand-up comedian, but I would I would try to inflect an opportunity to to never forget the fun factor. And we're all we're all human beings and you know there there were so many people that worked for me. I, I can I remember one individual that I'd hired back in 2010 this guy was so intense. I mean, just to be around him, you, you, you could feel the intensity. And every once, I mean, but when you got him out of the work environment, you know, sitting down after working hours and just having a, a fireside chat, you know, he'd smile, he'd break a smile and, and you'd be like, wow, you, you need to do that more in, in the work environment because your intensity level is about to drive everybody around you crazy. Uh, and I would just try to use those, those any, many opportunities to, to keep things light instead of having things be so intense all the time. And that's, that's one of the things that I wanted to, to inflect in the culture that, that I was building, the subculture. And there's a lot of things though, that happen around you, outside influences, inside influences that are gonna change that culture. And, you know, but when you, when you talked about the DNA of the organization, what I call the DNA, it does change over time and there, there's no, it has to evolve. And it's, it's constantly evolving. That culture is, once again, the dominant thoughts of the organization. And every time you bring some new person in, they're going to bring their, some thoughts with them that are may find their way into the mainstream. The challenge is, is being able to, to get everyone on the same page. And if you have dissenters to, to sit down with them and just say, hey, you're, you're changing our DNA in a, in a, to a way that we, we don't want, and, and you have to identify you know what what the problem areas are, and that's not an easy thing to do. But sometimes it involves some very hard conversations, and sometimes you do lose some of those commandos. As some people that were great commandos do not make good soldiers.
0: Yeah, it makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, Al, you went through this you know incredible experience of going fifth employee in the company to over a thousand, managing a few hundred people. You know, obviously you have a lot of insight and wisdom in terms of companies that go through a similar journey to that particularly you know in the startup space what mistakes do you see a lot of startups make either in the early phases or as they grow
2: one thing that i would say about my personal experience at aptus is in that hypergrowth period i think all of us looking back hindsight always being 2020 we would have pumped the brakes at least around 6 to 800 there was we were just growing way faster than, than we should have. So that that's one aspect of it. There's there's lots of other lessons to learn, and the the big ones I guess are there's nothing new under the sun. So most people either know or will figure it out. But it's to to keep your focus and be able to to adapt and change, and and be customer driven and and really always be in tune with what your customer needs or wants. And don't just build something for the sake of building it. There has to be a rhyme and reason. And that's one thing we did a fairly good job at Aptus. is everything we built, we ended up building many, many different solutions. And we started out with one, but at the end, there were, there were actually 19 different separate and distinct applications. They all seem to work together to solve similar business problems or a common business problem. But every time you build that thing out, make sure that it's, it's, solving a specific customer need. Don't just build it for the sake of building it. And then culturally, there's always, like I said, going to be things out of your control, but just do everything that you can to impact the things that you can control. And the things that you can't, you just got to let them go.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So I guess on the flip side of that, are there some common attributes that you see, particularly maybe in early stage startups or the leadership teams that, you know, startups assemble over time? Are there some common attributes there that you see the successful ones, the ones that typically will make it? Are there some commonalities that those leadership teams will have versus other ones that, that seem to flounder?
2: From my perspective, I think that there has to be a clear mission for the company in terms of what their, their mission and objectives to accomplish that mission are. It needs to be clearly articulated and it can't just be, Hey, we want to rule the world and so, of software, or whatever that world is. You have to have a clear mission. And in our case, it was, it was doing something that had never been done before, believe it or not. And, and that, that a couple of different aspects of the company that helped to get everyone around in the organization, charged up, it's always exciting to take on something that has never been done before. And that became part of our mission. And instead of just saying, well, we're going to do this or we're going to be the, the leader in this space, we were able to say, you know what? We're going to do something that's never been done. And it was actually not just one thing, but actually a couple of different things. Number one, it was, we're going to do this because we're bootstrapped. And very few companies had been bootstrapped uh, and and had any level of success. The typical example of a Silicon Valley-based company was taking on outside money right out of the gate. This company avoided that for seven years. And there were very, very few companies. We were in rare air when it came to those companies that did not take on outside funding and were bootstrapped. That was number one. Number two was the product mission and saying, you know what, we're going to create a new category. Gartner and Forrester and the other analysts that cover our space aren't even thinking about the world in this way. But you know what? When we're through with them, they're going to see the world the way we see it. And it's going it's to be revolutionary. And we're going to do that, which has never been done before. And those two things really help to motivate and to help shape the, the dominant thoughts or the culture of the organization.
0: So, Al, I, I want to be you know, respectful of your time, but I, I am curious, you know, you had seems like a hell of a journey with, with Aptis. What's next for you?
2: I appreciate that. I think it's pretty simple for me. I I'm looking for to, to find lightning in a bottle a second time. And that's, that's kind of a, an analogy, but to define that, first of all, I don't want to overdefine it. You know, the, the dating analogy, you don't want to have too many things on that list. Are you going to exclude everybody uh, from that list? And there's only going to be one or two people on the entire planet that would fit that list. So I, I, for me, I want to I want to find an organization that desires and wants hyper growth in technology. That's the only thing I could ever see myself uh, selling is technology, but also a business application that solves a complex business problem. That's just in my bloodstream, selling to the enterprise, the business not selling into IT. And, and really, that's it for me. I, I just want to find that organization that I can be passionate about. And I'll know the technology when I see it because it'll be in my bloodstream. It'll be something that if I can be excited, I can excite a team and I can excite prospective customers. So I'm, I'm looking for that next st- stage in my journey. And meanwhile, I'm consulting with some other companies to help them transform their business from more of a uh, transactional sale to selling to the enterprise and getting into Enterprise selling versus transactional selling is, is a, a difficult journey for some companies, especially if you started out transactional and you're making that bridge to, to enterprise. So that's what I'm doing in the meantime.
1: Again, it comes back to finding your passion, you know? Mm-hmm. It does. So, well, Al, if there's, if there's one thing that you would like people to remember from, from our conversation today, what, what would it be?
2: I think it would, I mean, a combination of find your passion but also iterate. Don't stay in the moment, especially if you're in a hypergrowth growth or want to be in a hypergrowth situation. Iterate. Always be thinking about where you need to be. Don't manage for the moment.
1: I mean, I think that's such great advice. So many people, they they, you know, we see it all the time. They they so desperately cling to the status quo because and in you, you made a comment earlier about. know how you changed your dna and and i think you know so many people they they forget that they have the power to do that and thus they don't iterate so i think that's a i think that's a wonderful wonderful lesson
0: yeah great way for us to wrap up al thanks so much for taking the time to uh to wrap with us today
2: thank you guys for uh hearing my story I, i appreciate it
0: this episode is brought to you by mojo performance enhancing services make people faster smarter and more effective as human beings. And Mojo is the world's most powerful. With Mojo, you can plan out your next move, tackle your next challenge, and accomplish your next goal. That's why people that use Mojo are in better shape, make more money, and have better relationships. And teams that use Mojo have higher performance, better cultures, and more talented people. So if you want to optimize your performance and well-being in 2022, try out Mojo risk-free at joinmojo.com. That's 14 days absolutely free at joinmojo.com.